This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio, Season 6, Episode 9. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 9 of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn Funy-Hatton. And I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. Today, we're speaking with Mark Prensky about his recent article, What the World Needs for Education. You may remember Mark from Season 3, Episode 3, when we discussed his book, Education to Better Their World, Unleashing the Power of 21st Century Kids. Mark is an award-winning, internationally acclaimed speaker, author, and practical visionary in the field of education. He's currently the founder and executive director of the Global Future Education Foundation and Institute, and he's spoken in over 40 countries, authored seven books, and published over 100 essays. Mark's background includes teaching at all levels, elementary through college, six years at the Boston Consulting Group, and 10 years as founder and CEO of a software game development company. He's been a professional musician, has acted on Broadway. He holds degrees from Oberlin College, Middlebury College, Yale University, and the Harvard Business School. So welcome back to the podcast, Mark. Pleasure to be here. Great. So let's kick off our conversation with a personal story from you about how you got so passionate about connecting young learners with real-world problem-solving. The reason I've, I've thought about this a lot recently, and the reason I'm so passionate about young people, I think, is because in all my career in education, which was took me through four graduate schools and maybe the first 20 or more years of my life or 25, I don't think I ever had a teacher who really saw me as the person that I was, who really saw beyond the work that I was doing, the papers that I submitted, the things that I wrote, to say to me, Mark, you're an unusual person in these particular ways, and these are some directions that I would recommend that you go, other than down the curriculum a particular path. So my goal really is to do that for kids and to help others do that for kids. The reason I say that kids should do real-world projects is because we are all concerned with this idea of motivation. But it's really a bugaboo because everybody is motivated by what they care about. There's no question about it. I watch my kid who has now just started high school, and he really has a hard time getting motivated about any of his classes in high school, but he comes home and he flies airplanes around the world on his simulator, and he's very good, and he's already become pretty much a very good pilot of any plane. He can start up a 777 from scratch and fly it and land it, and now he's setting himself the challenge of being an air traffic controller which he can do, and it's going to take him three years through the simulation. So using your own son as an example is not always the best idea, but my sense is that every kid in the world has dreams. 
that every kid in the world has something that he or she cares about, that every kid in the world sees problems in the real world that they think they can fix or that they would like to fix. And every kid in the world has things that they're good at and love to do. So if we really thought we were going to have a student-centered education, we would just say to the kids as they come into our place, what are your dreams? What are the problems you care about? What are your strengths? What do you love to do? And then we would do our best to hook them up with opportunities to do those things. That's really all education needs to be about. Easier said than done. It's easier said than done because we are burdened with this huge amount of tradition. We have this huge curriculum, which now is mandated by law. I I have a very nice image of a container ship, super overloaded with containers. That's what our curriculum is like. The problem is that in the past, some of what we did worked. So if we wanted particular kinds of people in the context that we were in, it was useful to have them learn to read or do arithmetic on paper. We don't live in that world anymore, and the kids will not live in that world anymore. There is very, very little in our curriculum that kids couldn't live without. In fact, most of it they forget by the time they become adults. So what people remember is what they do that they cared about. They remember the people who cared about them, and they remember what they were able to do that was meaningful to them. And why we do anything else beside that as our school is really beyond me. And the book that I just read recently that I think explains a lot of it is Brian Kaplan's book that talks about signaling. The reason we put our kids through this, and if I can use the word crap, is to signal three things. One, they're reasonably intelligent. Two, they're persistent. And three, they're compliant. They can do things that they don't want to do that others want them to do. That's what school is. And I don't think that's very good for kids. And I don't think it's at all good for kids in the future. I think it's just going to hurt all of us in the future. So your story makes me think of a question. As educators, do we really know our kids? My answer would be talking to kids all around the world, absolutely not. Because we never have conversations with them about what they think. I do it with kids, and it's the first time it ever happens that students are talking to adults, usually teachers and administrators, about how they feel. And I'll give you a very good example because it just happened. I'm in Korea, and I have four students on stage. And I told the students, as I always do, all we want to do is hear your opinions. Please be as honest as you feel comfortable. And so this young woman, she's 14 in middle school, was talking. And she said, I see my principal here in the front row. I want to say something to him. Is that okay? I said, of course. She said, you know, the first day of school, you gave us this two-hour lecture about how we have to do social good and about what our school is going to be about and all this kind of stuff. And it was boring and it was one way and I really didn't like it. And so the poor principal, who actually is a very good guy, got up and said, you know, it's interesting because that was only a half hour lecture. (laughs) But clearly it seemed to the girl like it was a two hour lecture. It would never end. And this is what the kids think of all of us. We think we're just standing up there and saying brilliant things. 
the kids think blah, 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 blah. And so, and we never ask them about that. One of the things that we don't do enough of is shadowing kids. If you go and sit with a kid every day and see what that kid has to go through in terms of the listening and the activities and whatever it is, I've seen principals do this and then fire teachers or superintendents fire other people. It's, it is terrible. What kids go through in school is almost universally terrible. It is, my son's word for it, is prison. And we have this idea because we're teachers and we're good and we love culture and we do all this, that the stuff that we're doing is actually interesting and useful to kids. And the answer is, sure, maybe for one kid at one time, for one minute during one you know period of the year. So we have to get over that illusion and listen to what the kids think they want and need. One of the things that I observe is that the kids have looked to the future. They have seen that it's a future where they will be very deeply integrated with technology. They have a way to do that. It's called video games. It's called cell phones. It seriously integrates them very well with technologies. Schools say, get it out of here. Schools say, don't do that. Schools say, you should be the kind of person we were 50 years ago. And that is so wrong for kids. They hate it. Some of them comply. Some of them, as I tell my kid to do, learn to play school because that signals that you will do things that you don't want to do that others want you to do, <laughs> which is what work requires. But that's such a terrible way of raising our kids. It's terrible. And we should stop. That's a good segue to the next question, which is you know, more future-focused. And looking at the system that you've described, does that actually um, serve the future of the students in the world that they're going to be living in? And so in your paper, going back to the focus of the conversation, you uh, have an interesting quote, and this is the quote. The big issue for the world is not to create more or new jobs, but to figure out effective ways for people to be compensated for whatever series of world-improving projects they want to and choose to do. So take a second and unpack this for us and help us to understand uh, what your thinking is behind it and why it's important for us to know. Sure. The one thing in the world that we will never run out of is problems. <laughs> That's the thing that exists. And the interesting thing about young people is that in the past, they couldn't really do much about the problems they saw. They had to wait till they got to be adults and we gave them permission and they had some skills in order to do that. That has totally changed. And so now kids can do things at a very early age. If they see something dirty, they can clean it up. If they see the world, like Greta Thunberg told us about, they can actually do stuff. And I'm, my recommendation to Greta is, yes, tell the adults to sit down and start saving the planet. You guys can do this. You have the tools. You have the ability. You can organize yourselves. You are extended minds all networked together. And most of what we did in the past was because nobody could do it for us. So reading is something that machines are much better at than people. A machine can read Google, talk to books, can read 150,000 books in half a second for meaning. Writing nonfiction, machines are good at that. They can put the scores together and most of that happens there. Accessing information, researching, translating, collaboration, learning even agility, certainly grit. Those are machine skills. 
We used to do them because we didn't have machines. Now, here's the interesting part. Things that we often think of as human, critical thinking, debating, project management, systems thinking, connecting ideas, fiction writing, conversation, relating, even art and music. These things are switching to machines. Machines are actually better in many cases at critical thinking than humans will be. They can certainly write acceptable art and music. And if you think they can't debate, go look up Watson Debater on the internet, on YouTube, and you will see that a machine can almost beat the best human in a formal debate. So what's left? That's the interesting part. What do humans do well once the machines take over all this other stuff that we used to be so proud of? Humans are better at dreaming. Humans are better at imagining, feeling, respecting, being empathetic. Humans are better at compassion and ethics and creativity and being unique. And especially humans are better than machines at accomplishing, at getting things done. That's why it's important that our young people in the future focus on getting things done. Now, you have to obviously know stuff in order to do that, but you don't have to learn that stuff in advance. Mm -hmm. You don't need a curriculum for 12 or 20 years to teach you that stuff before you can do. You do it like my son does it. What does it take to be an air traffic controller? Well, first thing, you got to memorize the names of all the airports, the codes. He did that in one night. Okay, oh the next gosh. thing you got to do is understand organization and how planes behave on the ground and in the air. He did that. And so what happens is that when people want to do something, they learn whatever they need to do to do it. That's who we are as humans. Who we are not as humans, what we forced ourselves into the mode of, is pushing things into people's heads in advance. That's something that the academics, I say the academics hijacked education. They just said, oh, it should be all about thinking and you should have all of this knowledge. Well, first, all the knowledge we have is online. It's available to any 12-year-old walking down the street. And second, most of the knowledge kids will need in 10 or 20 years hasn't been invented yet. So there's no point in trying to feed it to kids. They're going to be inventing it. They're going to invent it in service of making a better world. They're going to invent it in service of solving the problems they see. And so that's really what we want our kids to be. It's very different. The C's, you know, we talk about critical thinking and communication, and there's these four C's. I had a kid, a 14-year-old, talk about C's, and her first C was change. And her second one was curiosity. And her third one was community. And that's all we need. So I have a new set of basics. Parents say to me all the time, kids still need the basics. If you haven't heard that recently, just go talk to anybody. And my answer to that is, yeah, but the basics are different now. They don't need reading and writing and arithmetic. Machines can do reading. Machines can do writing. Machines can do arithmetic. What they need, I call it Lego. Love, empathy, gratitude, optimism. What they need is the new ABCs accomplish, better your world, continue doing it over and over again. What teachers need is what my friend Esther Wojcicki calls trick towards kids. Trust, respect, independence, collaboration, kindness. Those are the new basics because machines are going to do all the stuff we used to do. Mm-hmm. All the stuff. You want to build a building, a machine will, will really help you do it. But you imagine the building you want to build. 
You know, I love the that beautiful Frank Geary building in New York City, if anybody knows about that. It's curves and it's all kinds of crazy things. That's his imagination. Once he has that imagination, the computers build it. That's really the world we're going into. It's a very different world. It's a world where we are, you sitting there and I and most of your listeners, are the last pre-internet generation the world will ever know. That's who we are. And that's where our ideas come from, and that's where our background comes from. We are now having the first internet generation the world has ever known. Guess what? That's a huge experiment. We don't have a clue as to really how to bring up these people, not for tomorrow, because we do for tomorrow. We all know what colleges and all this kind of stuff, but for the day after tomorrow. These kids are going to be living 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now. It's going to be a totally different world that we don't even imagine. And we think our job is somehow to prepare them for that by teaching them to read? No. For 500 years, writing things down and then being able to retrieve it through reading was extremely important. That's how we preserved information. Before that, we did it orally. Now we're going to do it a combination of orally and machines. Soon our machines are going to be able to search any book, anything you want to know. You don't have to read to get it because it'll read it to you. You don't have to write it down because if you say it, the machine will write it down, by the way, in any language. So we have to get our kids good at being able to think and say the right things and know what they want to retrieve, but we don't have to do it anymore through reading and writing. We do for the next maybe 10 years. So that's our dilemma. Short term versus long term. Educate your kids to go to what, what today are colleges, right? And then they'll be educated. Okay, then, you know, maybe that's all you can do with the kids in high school. But if you're starting with kids who are now just entering school and they're going to be living 30, 40, 50 years from now, what do you do? And it's not the stuff from the past. Mm. So let's talk about those learners and adults. And in your paper, you write that people everywhere at different but accelerating rates and at all ages and levels are on their way to becoming symbiotic human hybrids. Yes. So what do you mean by that? Symbiotic human hybrids. I mean, you will be symbiotic with machines. So let me give you the simplest example. Telling time. It used to be, if you wanted to know what time it was, you had to go out, see if you could find the sun, understand where you were in the year, understand where you were in the seasons, and then you might have a good idea of what time it is. Then we invented this machine. It's called the watch or the clock. And what do we teach our kids? Do we teach our kids to tell time? No. We teach our kids to read the watch. That's all we do. We spend a lot of time in elementary school teaching them to do that. We have delegated the time task to a machine that we strap to our wrists. Well, we are in the process of delegating many tasks to machines that we carry with us, that we strap to us, that will soon be embedded in us. That's what's happened already. Nobody goes to a restaurant and wants to split the check. You know, if you've got five people, what happens? You don't pull out pieces of paper and start- (laughs) (laughs) You pull out your calculator. You know, it's so many things are delegated now to machines like this conversation that we're having, right? We're Mm -hmm. doing this on machines. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean by symbiotic. Mm -hmm. We have to think about, you know, I look at you, I stare at you, Randy, and you've got this machine on your head (laughs) and this machine in front of you. And you are literally, you should take a photo of you right now because you are a symbiotic human hybrid. I'm taking a photo. Yes. She's going to tweet it out He's then. He's a sound snob, too. 
Yes. And so the point is that we need to accept this stuff. The point is that this is the world we have created. It's the way the world is going. It's not going backwards, except in, you know, if somebody wants to preserve a pocket. And our kids want to grow up in their own world. They don't want to grow up in the world of their grandparents. Very few of them do. They want to grow up in their world and create their world. And they're excited about that. That's why they get so excited about spending all their time, you know, on their phones. My kid is texting his friends all the time and other kids are, and we're doing it around the world. We have such incredible possibilities now. Now, does that mean that there's no danger, no harm? No, Of course, whenever you go into a new world, when you're an explorer, when you were Lewis and Clark or Magellan or anybody else or Columbus, you could get killed. You could get hurt because you didn't know what was there yet. It was a new world. And that's the world that we live in now. Here's the sad part. Here's what adults did to kids. They were able to invent, because we always do this, when a new technology comes out, that it goes in two directions first. It goes in the direction of pornography and it goes in the direction of games because those are things that people want to do. So that's fine. So people invented games for learning or for kids to get them involved, just as Bill Gates used solitaire to have people learn how to use a mouse, right? And that was, that's fine, except that they started exploiting the kids. So they started making them pay for this stuff and in-game stuff and using their money and spending their money on this stuff. And that's not good. It's not good to have kids exploited by this technology. It's not good to do things that are hurtful because of the technology or to use it for bullying or to do all this. That, that's not good. But the technology underlying that, that we're learning to use and become part of us, is very good. It's like saying we hadn't used our brains for a long time and suddenly we're realizing we have brains and now we're starting to use them. And guess what? There are villains out there and they're going to use their brains in evil ways. But most people are going to learn to use their brains, and now I say extended brains, which is the technology, the networked brains, they're going to use them for good, for the good of humanity, for solving humanity's problems, local, community, family, national, cultural, global, and even now we're talking about cosmic. This is what kids want. They want to participate in their future. They don't care, and we shouldn't care, about almost any of the things that they do in school, other than skills that they immediately apply to making their world better or to thinking about the future. That's fine. If you say, okay, now we're networked, what capabilities does that give us that we didn't have before? That's fabulous. But if you say, now we're networked, oh, by the way, put it away, <laughs> who does that help? Who does that help except for the people who knew how to do their job 20 years ago and they're still doing the same job? It helps them. It's hard to teach when kids are distracted by their phones. There's no question about that. But whose fault is that? Who should change? That's the real issue that we're not dealing with. One of the earlier... Welcome, Superintendent. <laughs> yeah. One of the earlier things you said was our kids want to grow up in their world. So let's connect that or contrast that to another phrase that you use in your paper. Our kids are not pets. That's a really important thing. I thought it was a very important insight. Everybody can have their own. But most of the time, we treat our kids 
as if they were not human beings or colleagues or other people that we treat as equals. We treat them as people we control. And the analogy works really well. Sit here, follow me. And especially, you know, my kid pointed out, now is when you can go to the bathroom and now is when you can't. The most important thing is that we tell them to perform the tricks we teach them. So that's what testing is. We taught you this trick of factoring quadratic equations. Okay, roll over and do it, you know, <laughs> perform the trick for us. And so much of our school is that. And so a much better metaphor, I think, is for our kids to be rockets, for our kids to be just sent off as fast and as far as they can in directions that they choose. And all we do is help them get off the ground. That's really our job. And the fuel of the past, the pet food, I call it, the pet food curriculum of the past, the fuel that we had to put into kids in order to make them succeed, that is no longer working. That fuel, everybody rejects, everybody forgets. Everybody gets out of school and as soon as they get into college, they forget everything they learned, learned in high school, et cetera, et cetera, with the exception of the very, very few lessons that we don't actually reinforce, that we don't say to kids. We don't say, what's the one thing you should remember from this course in 20 years? We don't say that. We say, blah, 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 here's all the stuff. <laughs> so the kids don't know what's important because we haven't told them. And that's why I want to tell them, you know, love, empathy, gratitude, optimism. That's important, folks. Accomplishment, bettering your world, continuing to do it over and over again. That's important, kids. Trust, respect, independence, cooperation, collaboration, kindness. That's important, kids. So that's really where I think we want to go. And if, you know, if I can make a recommendation as the head of a small school district where you have perhaps some flexibility, you know, think about those things. But most important, not just do them, discuss them with the kids. Discuss them with the kids. Do the kids think those are important things? It doesn't matter what Prensky thinks. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters what the kids think. And we can advise them. We can say, well, in our times, this was important. And in current times, this is still important. But it's very much harder to advise them about future times. And we have to rely on them to understand how they think and how they see things and how they see the world. And is it important that they spend more time on their devices than on sleeping, which is my big family discussion. <laughs> but my kid will turn to me and he'll say, you know, this stuff is really important to me. This stuff is really meaningful to me. And if I, it's more meaningful than my getting, you know, an extra hour of sleep so that I can do more algebra. And normally we just dismiss that. How could you, you know, we know better. We're the adults. We're the educators. We know better. We dismiss what the kids say. We disrespect them. We underestimate them. And if you talk to kids, one of the phrases that I hear over and over again is, we can do stuff. You're not giving us the opportunity to do stuff. Give us some suggestions of where we might go, help us find out what we love, what we care about, how to follow our dreams, and we'll go do it. And I think this is true for all kids. I don't think it's true for just top kids or bottom kids. It's true for all kids. So I'm going to give you a recommendation. This is as possibly for your listeners, but certainly for you as a superintendent. I think it's time to start an accomplishment track. 
we have plenty of tracks for different things. We have tracks for fast learners and we have tracks for slow learners and we have tracks for advanced kids and we have tracks for this. And let's start a track for accomplishment. That's what you do. You start in kindergarten, you start doing real world projects and improving your world on some level. And then you do it over and over and over and over again. You learn only what you need to learn along the way to do that. The things that everybody needs to know are just the facts about the world, which you could learn in an hour, are the forms of government, which you can learn in a day. I mean, there are very few things that everybody needs to know. Almost everybody knows what they know because of their interests, of because of who they are. I've been uh, talking a lot. <laughs> it's interesting to listen to your ideas, so certainly thank I you. Hope for... you can, I hope you can cut this into something that's... that's oh, reasonable. no, it'll be good. It's, it's it'll be good. good. Don't worry. Questions? I love this. You have more questions? Yes. All right. So in an effort to provide more resources for our listeners, we'll ask you a few of our lightning response questions. Just looking for a quick response here, some ideas or resources that our listeners and we can go to for more information and to extend our thinking. You ready? Yes. Okay. So who's one person, maybe an expert, a facilitator, an author, anybody who you think our listeners and we should connect with to learn more about this idea of connecting learners to real world impact projects and what matters to them? There are two directions to go. One is the practical side, which is a, an organization known as Design for Change, dfcworld.com. And they started in India. They have kids in 60 countries doing real world projects, some of which have no technology, some of which are very high technology. They're really good. The other person group I would suggest is it's called Abundance and it's part of Singularity University now. And it's run by a guy named Peter Diamandis. And Peter Diamandis is very, very good at spreading the ideas about what the future is going to be like and how fast it's coming and taking the real practitioner's ideas that are actually happening and presenting that. He has an abundance newsletter that every kid in the world should be reading. If you want to get resource to see what kids have done, I have a database. That's btwdatabase.org. And that will show you more than 100 projects that kids at all levels have done better their world, just to give you examples and ideas. All right. Great resources and recommendations. How about a book, if you are recommending one book to our listeners? And we did already link The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. So another resource. Ray Kurzweil just wrote a book called Danielle. And that's a book about a young kid who is somewhat of a prodigy, but who starts at a very early age making the world better through technology. And it shows how much kids can do. And then it's included with, these are all the problems you could possibly address. Pick the one that interests you. And these are all the kinds of resources for kids, especially. Everybody should read it. And I wondered, because this girl is a superhero in the book, I wondered whether that would inspire kids. So I had my kid read it, my 14-year-old. Absolutely. He said, it showed me I can do something with my life besides sitting in class. And sitting in class is really the thing that we want to get rid of, that kids do. And of course, what do we measure in the world? Seat time. So that's a really good book. One of my favorite books is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, because he points out that we are not as perfect as we think we are, and we better watch ourselves. A book that I love a lot is a book that not everybody reads. It's called Human 
accomplishment. And it's by Charles Murray, who is infamous because of some of the other things that he's done. This is a very good book. And what he shows is that human culture and all the things we do have been invented by very few people. So most of us just have to admire these people and build on their work. I love that book because it showed you know, who we should look at and where we should look. I love The Structure of Scientific Revolution by Thomas Kuhn, which I wrote an article recently about how that applies to education. All right, last question. Is there an online site or resource or person from whom you learn regularly? I read widely, and I try to be part of as many groups as I can. So Abundance and Singularity University is one way to look at the future. We have some online groups in Silicon Valley that are talking about this. I think it's really important to subscribe, especially on your phone and now that we can do it, to as many different sites as possible. I'm not a Republican, but I watch Fox News regularly because I want to understand their perspective and how they see the world. But here's something that's also really interesting that my friend uh, Jim G said. Everybody in the world with the internet can now find the group in which he or she is in the top 10%. You can find whatever it is that you care about, subscribe to groups that care about that, and then subscribe to groups that care about the absolute opposite. So learn more about global warming, but learn about what the people say who think it's not as important as others do. Really, people need to make up their minds themselves. In order to make up your mind, you have to know all the sides and all the arguments of what's going on. And you have to decide for yourself, yes, we have global warming, but is it man-made and therefore man-reversible? Or are we just going through a time in the history of the world where maybe we'll be wiped out or something else, but that's what's going to happen? We have to think about all these things and not just accept what people say. And I, I always look for the young people for new ideas and also to the science fiction writers because they often think in good ways. Not today's fantasy writers, but people like David Brin and Greg Bear. What Asimov used to do and Bradbury used to do really push our thinking into the future. So I would say read as much of the, of the future-oriented science fiction and not the fantasy, as you can, if I were advising any people. But mostly what we lack is a way to know who we are. That's what I started with. It was very hard for me to figure out who I was, to have the guidance. And I just put my son through something that was very useful to me many years ago, which is the, it used to be the Herman brain scan, but they're still around, H-E-R-R-M-A-N-N. It's a short questionnaire that really tells you a lot about yourself. That really tells you a lot about how you think, whether you're analytical, whether you're intuitive, whether you're a people person. And I don't see why we're not putting all our kids through instruments like this, through the kind of things that we know that will help them say, ah, yeah, that's me. Okay, given that that's me, here's something I might wanna do. Here's a project I might wanna do. Here's something that fits me well. There are many more of us than there used to be. When I grew up, there were 2 billion people. Now there are almost 8 billion people. But we're still individuals. And we still need to figure out who we are, how we can contribute. And that goes back to the question you asked about each person figuring out how he or she can help the world. 
That's really what we want to do. That's what education, that's why we would pay for education. We pay for education, whether we do it publicly or privately, to get a better world for us, but especially for the kids, in my view. And so we need to focus on all the things that kids want to do and can do to make our world better. Well, we've appreciated your time today and reconnecting with you. It's been a couple of years, but uh, just continue to push our thinking and the thinking of our listeners, too, around how do we change this system of education so it's not done to our learners, but done with them? And how do we take their voice in and understand what are those things that they want to connect with? Let me even add one more so that it's done for them, not with them, because that implies that there's, you know, some of what we want to do. No, education is for them so that they can go out and become people who are make the world better for all of us. So I wouldn't say with, I would say for. And that's what true student-centered education is. All right. So some more additional food for thought there. So to finish this up, Mark, again, thanks so much for being here. What are you working on now that you'd like to share with our listeners? Really what I work on is student empowerment. What I'm trying to figure out are how many ways are there in the world? How many people are doing things that let kids use the new powers that they have to improve the world? I'm thinking about the new basics that I described earlier. I'm thinking about this idea of accomplishment and how to get accomplishment tracks in the world and how to get away from what I call math, English, science, and social studies. The acronym is MESS, right? <laughs> the global education reform movement, the acronym is GERM. That's from Pasi Salberg in Finland. Our curriculum now is a germy mess. And the kids feel it and they don't want to be there. And it feels like prison. And how do we get away from that? And it's so easy because all you have to do is say to the kids, what do you want to do to improve the world? And every kid will have an answer. And when our job would be then let's facilitate and let's make a better world. The fact that your school district is in a community should mean that that community is improving all the time constantly because the kids are improving it. Not that they're going through your system and getting into college, but they are actually improving whatever the community is that your school is situated in and that they're improving in a bigger sense or whatever sense it is. But that's the reason why the public pays to you to have public education in your community. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. We really enjoyed hearing some of your ideas. To learn more about Mark's work, you can see a variety of links, the books, the organizations, even Mark's website and link to his document. MarkPrensky.com is the best place to start. And I hope this was a different perspective for you and a little breath of fresh air, perhaps some people say. What did some guy say to me? He said, in the same conversation, he said, you're an iconoclast. He said, I've never used that word in my life, but you're an iconoclast. You break things down. And then he said, you are so far out of the box, I can't even see the box. That's the point, right? <laughs> there you go. And so it really is about changing optics. Let me end with this. It really is putting on new lenses. This is what I learned from rereading Thomas Kuhn's book on the structure of scientific revolution. If you've got a world there, and if everybody has the lenses on that say it's flat, then everybody will keep saying to their kids, it's flat, it's here, we've done this, all this kind of stuff, until somebody comes along and says, oh, wait a second, I sailed off one side and came back to the other side. It's not flat. And then it takes a long time for people to start putting on these new lenses. 
and sometimes they compete for which lenses it should be. But that's the stage we're in now. We're in a new world. We need desperately to put on new lenses. And it's hardest for the people who grew up in the old world. Mm -hmm. It's hardest for the last pre-internet generation. It's easier for the kids, but we don't listen to the kids. So that's our issue right there. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. Each episode, we leave our listeners with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. And this episode's question, how will you connect your learners to real-world impact projects to best prepare them for an ever-changing world? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for Season 6, Episode 9. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring innovative thought leaders. Thanks again, Mark. to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.